Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I went down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shawny man? When the Republic of Ireland welcomed Northern Ireland to Lansdowne Road at the end of March 1995, our hopes of qualifying for Euro 96 were looking rock solid, really, after three wins from the first three games. 90 minutes and one Ian Dowie equaliser later. Uh, not that anyone knew it at the time, but the wheels had actually just fallen off the Jack Charlton bandwagon with Big Jack left to comment ruefully, I hate March. Yeah. I wonder how many more early season games Harry Kane has to shoot blanks in, Ken, before he goes and gives poor old August a similar shooing <laughs> in an interview situation. Thanks for listening to Monday Second Games Podcast, everybody. Uh... Yeah, Harry Kane has scored in August before. Alan. Premier League, though. Well, not in the Premier League. Um, he scored in the Europa League against Limassol mm-hmm. twice. Two different matches in August. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, if you if you were to ask, if, if I had to suggest why this might be, other than it just being coincident, which, coincidence, which is what I think it is, um, maybe it's that Harry Kane is one of those players who... Because he, because of his size, just needs a little bit longer to get up to sort of full match fitness. Um, you know, you often see that with bigger, bigger players. They kind of take a couple of games to warm up. I yeah, mean, but he's bigger in a muscular sense. He's not bigger in a fat sense. I'm not saying he's fat. He's just big. Mm. Um, it's not like this excess poundage, though. With the, the people you're talking about, I. I kind of know what you mean, but some of them genuinely have a bit too much weight. I mean, we're talking about players like Jimmy Beatty here, Owen. Yeah. Jimmy, seven matches to play himself into form Beatty. Um, always needed to be 110% fit in order to have any <laughs> impact. Now, Harry Kane isn't really in that. I, don't know, I mean, I just think it's it's one of those 
Just one of those things. Oh, one of those things, Ken. Well, here's his Premier League record in August. Played 12, pulled the trigger 34 times, including eight <laughs> shots <laughs> eight shots against Chelsea yesterday. It's never scored a goal. This is a guy whose final two games of last season, remember, both played in lovely May, of course. Mm-hmm. Ah, ah, May. What a month for Harry Kane. So I'm bursting net seven times, Ken, yeah. to secure his second Golden Boot Award. Mm-hmm. So why, oh, why can he just not do it? Enough? Well, he's playing Burnley uh, in the next match, and it's another chance to score in August. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if he did. For the record, by the way, June, just to go back to the Euro 96 qualifying campaign, mm. I've looked at some subsequent results, Ken, and it turns out June, September, November and December weren't very good to us either in 1995. No. Draw with Liechtenstein, of course, two defeats to Austria, another away in Lisbon, sent us hurtling towards that fateful playoff against a disgustingly talented young Dutch team at Anfield which proved to be Charlton's last game in charge. So I, I understand you've got to approach this idea of singling out specific months of the football calendar with a certain amount of caution. Yeah. Could just be coincidence. And of course, Steve Staunton was later to contradict Jack Charlton flatly when he said uh, at the end of beating San Marino 2-1 very narrowly in February, we're usually strong in March. Uh, in Sort of, don't judge me now, judge me next month, March, uh, when we typically get better results. When Ken isn't sitting here pondering life's important questions, such as Harry Kane's August wobbles, he's busy talking to brilliant historians like Mark Jones on the World Service, as you'll know if you're a signed-up member. Mark helped Ken break down the events of Charlottesville last week and pointed out some of the parallels between these Nazis and their predecessors back in the 30s and even earlier. In Germany, in Berlin, for example, they would go into the working class strongholds, places like Wedding in North, northern Berlin, which is a place where they're largely supporting the communists. They would go there and they would stage their march there because they're deliberately trying to provoke violence against them so that they have an excuse to fight back. And this is the same dynamic that we saw at the weekend. It's the same dynamic whereby the aggressor has a script that allows them to invert their roles so that they can describe themselves as the victims being attacked in Charlottesville by who they people who they call commies, even though they've travelled halfway across the uh, North American continent in some cases to uh, start a fight. That was an absolutely cracking interview for more of that chat and more football pods too, of course, and to hear how Ken gets on later this week when he arrives in Vegas, his favourite city in the world. For McGregor versus Mayweather, why not sign up for only five euro a month plus fat? All the cool kids are doing at secondcaptains.com for details. Report on sport, Ken. Yeah, and can't wait to get over to sunny Las Vegas. I was looking at the weather forecast, actually, and it went uh, Wednesday, 38 degrees, Thursday, 39 degrees, Friday, 40 degrees, Saturday, 41 degrees. That's too warm. I thought, all right, okay, that's quite warm. Um... Suppose when you are when you are there, you spend nearly all your time indoors in air conditioned environments. Anyway, so it doesn't make that much difference. But uh, yeah, that should be uh, that should be a nice second half to the week. Oh yeah. Uh, one of the previous times I was there uh, over there, I saw Neymar. He went to see the uh, McGregor Mendes fight, which was meant to be McGregor Aldo. Um, I guess he was probably there to see or to support Jose Aldo. I'm not sure. Um, got more, got more bang for his considerable book with the Mendes fight, though. That was one where didn't Mendes have him wrestle to the ground for a little while. Yeah, that one lasted nearly two rounds, <laughs> uh, whereas the, the other one was uh, a bit shorter. But Neymar, you know, I've been criticizing him a lot over the last few weeks. So I don't think he should have done what he did. But if you're going to do it, this is the way to do it. <laughs> I think you've been won over. <laughs> 
No, not not really won over. I just think that he's going about his business in the right way at Paris Saint-Germain, which is to say, if you are going to go to a league where you are like an adult playing against children, then you might as well put on a show. Uh, Neymar, so far, has, has turned the matches into a kind of uh, anime epic fantasy uh, with him as the hero, in which he is pulling out pretty much all the stops and... He's playing, you know, like a like it's some kind of an exhibition game on the beach, and except this is this is in the European League. This is the kind of stuff he wasn't able to do at Barcelona. Um, not just because he couldn't do it, because he could have done it, but because the culture, the serious culture of the game in Spain, it would have been just a massive faux pas for him to carry on in this way. So what he's done is he scored. Uh, Three goals, he's had three assists in two matches. Um, you may have seen his goals and his particularly corner kick assist uh, from the match against Toulouse, uh, 6-2 to Paris. Yeah. Uh, Neymar's first goal was a ball into the box. Someone had a shot, uh, which the goalkeeper spilled. And Neymar, who's the only man in the box who's been moving this whole time, there's loads of defenders, but they're all standing there. Um, Neymar just makes a run after he passes the ball and as the goalkeeper spills it, he's arriving onto the ball to knock it in, so uh, that was quite an easy goal for him, really. Second goal is in injury time at the end of the second half and it's it's one of the weirdest super individual goals I've ever seen. He, I mean, he, he kind of starts off on the left side of the defensive line, working through a few players there, kind of spinning around, knocking the ball sort of between their legs or around them. Sometimes it's knocking off their legs and straight back to him. But he beats like four or five men spinning around the last one to, to knock it in for, you know, uh, a super goal. Not unlike the Zlatan goal for Ajax. <laughs> Very unlike the Zlatan. With a, with a bit You're less talking control, about the goal against Nak Breda. Yeah. Zlatan was completely in control of the ball at all times in that in that well, same, sort of, same sort of weaving run in and out Man, you know. I'd, I'd say the Zlatan one was a lot cleaner in yes, its execution that is true, yeah, yeah. the Neymar one he was kind of just wriggling and trying to see where, where it got him and uh, surprisingly enough he managed to make it all the way through all the defence and scored um, so it, this does create its own dynamic it's not something we're really used to seeing you know how badly can this guy actually bully this league this season you know he's he's going to be hitting Henrik Larsson levels of dominance uh or, you know, Lionel Messi levels of dominance, you could say. Um, if you think back to Messi's uh, hyper goal-scoring seasons in uh, playing for Barcelona. Ballon d'Or levels of dominance, you could say. <clears throat> well, I mean, the Ballon d'Or, you know, you, you, you're going to have to start bringing in other sort of uh, contrived scenarios. I mean, was, was Ozzy Ardiles in the, in the running for the Ballon d'Or after his performance in Escape to Victory? Because he should have been. Not to my knowledge. He, he actually, Neymar, oh, so I can't believe I forgot to mention the famous trick that Ozzy Ardiles does, Neymar did. I'm, I'm talking here about the one where you, I, I think it's called a rainbow flick, where you flick the ball up sort of behind yourself over the head of your bamboozled opponent, run around the other side and get the ball. I've tried that one, yeah. You don't tend to see this trick <laughs> being done much in in at the highest level of professional football it's really insulting to the opponent and in fact uh, the opponent who Neymar flicked the ball over his head he did get uh, booked for yanking Neymar to the ground as he was honor bound to do 
But Neymar, I suppose, couldn't do this when he was playing for Barcelona because it would have been, who does this guy think he is? You know? This guy is like... Even Messi doesn't take the piss like that. Like well, Messi, well Messi doesn't. I mean, this is kind of the whole... This is a whole point about Messi, how everything about his game is, is sort of geared towards efficiency. You know, he doesn't do unnecessary things. He does what he thinks is the most effective thing at any point. And this is maybe one of the reasons why Messi does leave some people a little bit cold. You know, it's like, this guy is obviously brilliant. We, you know, nobody can argue with that. But sometimes you want a bit more showmanship from uh, from a, from a hero, hero player. Nonsensical. It's not really. I, in, mean, uh, I, I feel cold watching one in when Barcelona when he's doing it against you know poor teams and they're three 0 up. Mm. That leaves me cold. But when it, when it's a tight game or it's some particularly outrageous piece of skill, I don't know. How, I don't know. That's I just I don't really see but, how you're cold watching Leo Messi. Play well, it, it's I mean you're talking about thrilling moments. I mean, say uh, one of the most famous moments is, is the one against uh, Boateng, the the one in the Champions League semi final against Bayern. Um, where he, he ran in, Bozang went down, you know, like he'd been chopped down like a tree, and Messi chipped it over the goalkeeper. It's amazing, but tell me a way he could have done it more quickly or taking fewer touches than what he actually did. You know, it was just, it was kind of, it was minimalist. I mean, it was brilliant. No, Nobody else can do that kind of stuff. You know, not very often, at least. But it wasn't like uh, he really he, he put in a lot of extra sort of grace notes and flourishes. You know, like beat Boateng twice, like waited for him to get up and went past him again, sort of st- stuff. You know, but he doesn't need it because the stuff that he does is so brilliant. No, of course he doesn't need it, but even for entertainment value, I don't think he needs to throw in those extra shimmies. Because his basic stuff is so good. His finishing mm. of one on ones is so effortless and graceful. I don't really see what the point of an extra step over. Would, would achieve for there, there would there would be no point and it wouldn't achieve anything and that's why he doesn't do it but there are players who do and Neymar is one of those I mean if you ever see Neymar take a penalty like Neymar's penalty his, his run up to take a penalty is more elaborate than anything Messi <laughs> has done in his career like contains more um, extraneous ornamentation than literally anything I've ever seen Messi do, Messi do he just sort of goes straight for what he thinks he he wants to do I'm not saying he it's obvious what he's going to do. It's clearly not, but he doesn't waste any time about getting to his destination. Now, you know, so so maybe we're this is, you know, if if I if we want to be more generous towards Neymar than I have been so far, as he kind of felt as though this side of him was being repressed. This sort of the kind of uh, I mean, I mentioned this trick was used in Escape to Victory. I mean, literally the sort of football that American movie directors in the 1980s would have thought was good football. Mm. You know, this is not what. I think top professionals usually consider to be good football, but it is what you know. It, it is it's undoubtedly entertaining when you see somebody do that. I forgot. I think I cut across you as you were about to talk about the corner kick. This is part of your. Mm. Well, the corner enjoying that cup of tea. Corner kick was sorry, just having a bit of a slurp there. The corner kick was incredible. I mean, he just dro- drove in the corner kick, um, sort of at, at head height. You know, all the way, kind of a rising corner. Which was belted into the net with a bicycle kick by I think Kurzawa, which is like all right. So everybody's kind of this is this is infectious. There's an epidemic of showmanship here in Paris Saint Germain. <laughs> Everybody has just been taken up onto samba level here by uh, Neymar, a guy who you know f- finally feels like he can sort of. Uh, 
okay, it's a different, it's a different thing. It's a different type of game from, you know, the, what Messi's been showing us the last few years. And you do have to, <laughs> the fact, the fact that he's doing it against players who aren't remotely on his level, you, you do have to keep that in mind. However, stop, quali- stop qualifying it, Ken. You're falling for Neymar, PSG Neymar, 2017. Uh, Meanwhile, at Barcelona. Yeah, well, I should say that that maybe the maybe the uh, the rainbow flick, so-called rainbow flick. I've never really actually heard it called. I had to look up what it was called. Um, is only the second most disrespectful thing this weekend after Harry Arter. Uh, <laughs> did you see what Harry Arter did to Chal- Chalaba? Uh, uh, Bournemouth against Watford and the ball coming in from the right hand side Watford have a break there's, there's like the first wave of them are, are kind of verging on the six yard line but Chalabas is loitering back from the play uh, just kind of waiting to arrive late into the box and the ball is cut back to the edge of the box towards him and it's it's a simple chance there's nobody near him I mean there are players in front of him between him and the goal but it is a simple unimpeded strike uh, at goal from 14 yards so why does he dummy it when there's nobody behind him except Harry Arter? Because Harry Arter has shouted out to him, leave it. <laughs> Which I didn't realize is supposed to be a yellow card. You're not you're not allowed to do this. Oh, no, yeah, you're not allowed, yeah. yeah. That's, that rule's been there for I mean, donkey's years, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I don't see why you're not allowed to do it, to be honest, but nobody does it. I think Del Piero scored a goal. Somebody scored in the Juventus Glory Days scored a goal where... The cross was coming in, and there were two defenders converging. I think he, I think he even might have said, maybe I'm attaching too much detail to this. It's nice Jesus. He might have said, whatever the, the two defenders name, use one of their names and said, X's ball, you know. So the other guy leaves it, and he nods it into the top corner. <laughs> if I've made that up, I apologize. If anyone remembers what the hell I'm talking about, please it's, email in editor at second. It's com. very, it's disrespectful, uh, but you know, Harry Arthur got away with it. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll try it again. So you, you mentioned Barcelona, oh, and they still haven't managed to sign anybody to replace Neymar apart from Paulinho. Um, and, uh, and, and they had issued a deadline of 7 p.m. for the 7 p.m. yesterday for Liverpool to accept their Coutinho bid, but that wasn't accepted, and now apparently they're considering another bid. Um, Dortmund have had more to say about it because they've also been trying to sign one of their players. Um, Usman who is still suspended because he, you know, he didn't train. Uh, and Dortmund uh, now say that they're standing up for the interests of the entire German league. <clears throat> Hans-Joachim Watzke is their chief executive. He says Dembele is their first choice. They have neither a plan B nor C because they know how good he is. We met on a Thursday with Barcelona. On Friday, he didn't show up for training. Is that a coincidence? Two weeks ago, I considered him to be a big and respectable club, but I'm not so sure anymore. We told him we'd allow him to leave, but not after only a year. We're not budging on what we've asked for, not a penny. We can't accept 30 million less than what we've asked for. Right now, I'd say he's got less than 50% chance of completing the transfer. Uh, you know, essentially, that uh, they're looking for 130 million euros. They said, that's what we want. If you're going to pay it, then pay it. And if not, stop wasting our time. Barcelona mm-hmm. still can't work out what to do here in this situation, should they? But what puzzled me about it was that the bid that they made for uh, Coutinho was actually less than that. It was a, it was, uh, or they, that they bid 100 million for Dembele euros but 90 million euros for Coutinho with add-ons, which they'd have to win the Champions League to pay. I couldn't understand why they why they would consider uh, Coutinho, who plays for a richer club in a much richer league, to be less expensive than Dembele, or it didn't make any sense to me why they would uh, put in a lower bid for one than the other. Maybe he's 
not quite as important to Barcelona. Could be, but they, it's, they kind of feel like they have to spend the money. They have to get somebody who, who they've had their eye on. So let's go for him. But he mightn't be the number one priority. Yeah, it could be, it could be. But you know, they, if they, it seems that they want to get any of these players, um, they're going to have to accept that they're not going to have much of the Neymar money left over. Mm-hmm. Um, so are we? Uh, Zlatan is going back to Manchester United. It turns out expected to sign a new contract. I mean, I don't really understand. Is it a full time marketing role, club ambassador? I mean, you know, Zlatan is a is a good club ambassador to send. Oh yeah, you know, if it, if it was like Castillero del Diablo wine, <laughs> are looking for a face of Manchester United to do some ad for them. Are you going to send Chucky McClare? Are you going to send, you know, David May? Or are you going to send Zlatan? I mean, who are Castillero del Diablo going to be happier with? Whether Zlatan wants to do that kind of stuff, I'm not sure. But the fact is, he did he did bust up his knee completely it was just was at the end of april the beginning of may um tore all the ligaments as far as i recall so i don't really understand how he can be uh really viable you know likely player for them this this, this uh season but, yeah you know. well he is like he's proving he's trying to prove to people that he is ready to go Ken, he tweeted this video yesterday i don't know if you saw it where he's he's kicking a heavy bag he's kicking a heavy bag which knee he asks rhetorically as though both of these knees are fine. But when you look at it, he actually, both times he's kicking, it's with his right foot. It's just one's a sort of spin kick and one's more of a straightforward kick. Oh, at, is n- it? at neither point does he actually kick with his left, as far as I can see. And in fact, I'm looking very closely now. Oh, he's kind of hopping a little bit on his left there. Maybe that's just a balance issue as opposed to anything else. You can get it up there and have a look for yourself. Look. Which... Um, boom, right foot. Boom. Right foot. Which knee was... I, d- I did mine the same week as Latan and I can't get down the stairs. So. <laughs> <laughs> same week? Oh my God. Uh, I did feel bad for Simon coming up today. Simon had a it was on holidays last week. Came back today, and was still hobbling a little bit up the stairs. I was I was disappointed. I thought it moved on more by now. Um, yeah, how far away? A lot, of, a lot of strength in the quad over the week. Unfortunately, imagine so. Back, back to the gym. Yeah. So is it is it the right is it the right foot that he kicks it with both times? Yeah, you're looking at it. But it was the right knee that he injured. Oh well, then that's probably fair enough. Here, I've got it in front of me here. If you want to look at it here, let me see. Why that. do I keep saying here so often? Here let's, you go. Let's see. Okay, right, right. Yeah, um, but if that's a knee that he injured, then like conspiracy that, theory is gone. That that is the knee that he injured. Yeah. Well, then that's fine. Um, so his point is, which knee? As in, it, look at my right. You know, the right knee is and the right. Is, kicking. Yeah. is there more stress on the standing knee or the kicking knee when you do that kind of move, of a move? I don't know. I'd say probably ask Conor McGregor knee. when you get over to Vegas. <laughs> yeah, Conor. Uh, <laughs> uh, where are we now? Mm-hmm. So. Okay, so so he could he could be coming in, but the important point is that Manchester United, at the top of the league, they're rolling, 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 and as Mourinho said, let the horses run free, and they are wild horses, untamable, and uh, they ran all over Swansea, oh, and that's for sure, and uh, so Mourinho at the t- is top with the team going really well early in the season, and they have played. Two of the, I believe, worst teams in the league. But that, I know that sounds a bit like Sour Grapes Zone. I do think that these are two bad teams that they've played. But it's always good to, you know, have some uh, nice, easy opponents to get, you know, to sort of oh, start working. I'm enjoying this up. so much. You're such a Mourinho skeptic. I'm going to have a full season of you refusing to give credit to Manchester United until the point that they've won the league by 12 points. Well, 
Uh, I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> I agree with anything Ken Early says about football. What he said, Ken. Yeah, I, I think I do like Ken yeah, Early's work. Yeah, he writes yeah. fluently and thinks uh, uh, cogently, but uh, I think he's wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, two, uh, two games in. Two, two games in, Manchester United have beaten a couple of diddy teams by big scorelines. Cheap shot, cheap shot, cheap shot, cheap shot. This is the kind of uh, game. Now, Mourinho had had spoken about these types of situations last season. His his complaint after a number of their disappointing, particularly home draws, was we never scored the second goal. You know, or we we score the first goal and then we can't. The, you think the game is going to unlock from there, and you can run in a bunch of goals, but that's not happening. You know, this was annoying him. And that is happening now, you know. They, you know, they scored. Uh, they they've finished off the game strongly, scoring a bunch of goals. Um, uh, and Anthony Martial has scored in both of those games uh, as a substitute. Uh, and Mourinho making some considerate noises about Martial after the game. I know the players are much better now, so the players should know me much better. Do I think he's a player with great potential? Yes, I think. Do I think he can play successfully for me? Yes, I think. But he needs to give me things that I like. Uh, things that he like, I assume, would include these nice counter-attacking goals that he's been scoring. Um, but he says uh, he's coming with the right attitude. We had a conversation about the future he has here. Of course he wants to play. Of course he wants to start. Of course he wants to be selected. Of course he wants to go to the World Cup. So that's good. For me, it's simple. I can't play Premier League, Champions League, FA Cup and EFL Cup with 11 players. I need a squad. I think he has a good connection on the pitch with Paul, with Romelu. I think he's growing in confidence. He says, maybe that French-language little group we have, Fellaini, Paul, and Lukaku, is a group where he's very well integrated now, and they bring him up. Maybe it is. I mean, you're putting together a team. I mean, he is somebody who looked disconnected from what was happening. You know, he he, he had been uh, left out or challenged publicly by Mourinho a couple of times. You know, this isn't good enough, or given a game and then dropped pointedly for the next two games. That sort of thing was happening. And Tottenham were trying to sign him. Um, but maybe Manchester United would be too clever to sell Anthony Martial to Tottenham at this point. Because the one thing I think that's never been a doubt with him is just how good a player he is. Mm. Um, you know, technically, physically, you can say, you, you could debate whether he's got the right attitude. Certainly Mourinho's questioned it before. You can question tactically, you know, whether he works the way that Mourinho likes a wide attacking player of his to work in, in defence. Yeah, probably not. But... He, you know, in terms of his his speed, his kind of agility, his uh, goal scoring, his finishing is, is brilliant, and always has been since since the first day he's arrived there. So, um, if Mourinho, well, I think it's a good sign essentially for for Manchester United that he seems to be in, in good form. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mourinho, when he does that, when he challenges players players publicly, mm. there he's looking f- either to do one of two things. He's either trying to give them a bit of the stick and try to motivate them that way because he sees some potential in them. Or he's not actually challenging them. He's just bad-mouthing them to uh, make it clear that he is eventually going to drum them out of the club. And it can be hard to judge sometimes with Mourinho which one that is. So at the moment, it's, it certainly seems to have been the former. He obviously fancies them and, uh, and maybe feels that he just needs a bit of a rocket again from time to time. Yeah. Um, so, that's, so that's all going well. Now, where are we... Uh just should mention, uh, speaking of rocket zone, mm-hmm. a couple of rockets in the Premier, uh, the Championship table. Um, 
piloted by dinosaurs. Very strange, isn't it? Uh, rockets perhaps uh, carrying Cardiff City and Ipswich Town to uh, the Premier League. Ipswich Town, of course, managed by uh, players' chair, multiple players' chair interviewee, Mick <laughs> McCarthy. Uh, Three times he's been interviewed in only the first few months of the players' chair. Has now won... Um, in case you missed it, Richie tried to interview him a couple of times. Didn't quite work out. Well, it worked out in terms of Mick agreeing and fulfilling his agreement to do the interviews. It just wasn't quite recorded successfully. But listen, that's all water on the bridge. Ken, please continue. Um, as Richard Keyes points out on his um, Deathless blog, uh, have you looked at the top of the championship? If not, please do. If you look at the top of the championship, you'll see Cardiff City and Ipswich Town, managed by Neil Warnock and Mick McCarthy, are joint top the only teams have won 100% of their four matches so far. I loved this quote from the Ipswich Town boss this weekend. That's McCarthy. Referring to himself and Neil Warnock. Two old farts that know fuck all about the game, eh? I'll have to get my iPad out now. Brilliant, Mick. And remember, adds Keezy, next time someone calls you a dinosaur, those creatures ruled the planet for 300 million years. <laughs> they were resourceful, the old dinosaurs. How many times has that quote been pulled out around the pool in, in Doha? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that quote gets a daily airing. But uh, yeah, 300 uh, million years of dinosaur rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, human beings, a tiny fraction of that time, you know? So yeah. um, anyway, so where are we on? Uh, we should talk about Chelsea. Um, Antonio Conte, very proud, very pleased of their victory against Tottenham. Tottenham's first home defeat uh, since, I guess, the season before last. Although it wasn't really a home defeat because they weren't playing at home. Although, um, it's going to be where they're playing this season. Conte says, we only have to think on the pitch, not to give answers to people. Because, oh, you've answered your critics. Uh, He says, uh, this moment isn't easy for us. We're very happy to have this group of players to show me great commitment, desire and will to improve. Um, I want to thank my players, everyone. I saw today the fighters. I'm very happy when I see this type of game. I'm not speaking about football. I'm speaking about this spirit, this heart, this desire. I saw fighters today. Fighters, including David Luiz, Owen. Magnificent in a central midfield role. Um, That's quite good, yeah. uh, Breaking up play, passing, uh, attacking, uh, being on the end of several nasty challenges. I don't know what it is about David Luiz, Owen. There's something about him that his opponents don't seem to like, uh, judging by the number of brutal uh, fouls uh, that are put in on him. But he won the game for them, essentially. Dispossessing, I can't remember which Tottenham player it was. Was it Wanyama? After Lloris had thrown it out and ultimately setting Alonso away. Yeah, Tottenham were a bit... Um, they, they, they didn't look too good. Uh, they, they, I mean, I, that seems a harsh thing to say because they were probably the better team in the game. I mean, they dominated the, the match. You know, they had most of the ball. They were, they were trying to make the game happen for most of the game. It just didn't happen. They got sucker punched by a free kick and then... a. A late, I mean, a bad goal for Lloris, particularly to let in. I think you know it's not the, not the greatest moment of his career. Uh, Lloris letting in that second one to Alonso, um, but you know there was all of this stuff about whether Chelsea are 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 badly run or not. We're going to be talking to Jonathan Wilson, I think, in a bit more detail about the game and, and these things. But you know the whole, oh, Chelsea are a bit of a mess, aren't they? Um, they, you know, wh- what about these transfer committee people? Well, transfer transfer committee is, is what they is is usually applied to Liverpool. But you know, uh, Michael Lemonalo, Marina Gramskaya, who are you know these Chelsea apparatchiks who are uh, 
you know, making all these silly decisions. And it, and, and the, the suggestion being that Chelsea maybe aren't that well-run a club, I have to say, I think they're pretty well-run. Uh, I mean, there was a good piece by Nick Harris, you know, Nick Harris from Sporting Intelligence. He, yeah. he had a piece in the Mail on Sunday, point, talking about Chelsea's uh, system of buying up all these young players. You know, they've got this, this huge sort of uh, farm, as he calls it, of uh, of players. There's, there's uh, I think, 62, 62 senior professionals at Chelsea at the moment. 25 members of the current first-team squad, 26 players out on loan, of which four are in the Premier League, and 11 more, in effect, waiting to be loaned. On top of the 62, there is a development squad of 25, plus dozens more youngsters in younger pre-professional age groups. Hmm... I mean, you can say that this is, it's its unfortunate that Chelsea are able to do this. But given that they are able to do it, I think it's something that they do very well. And to, to great effect, as Nick Harris points out, in, a, in the financial sense, because they make an absolute fortune out of this. Um, as he points out, um, the farm players joined Chelsea on average age 17 for £2.5 million and sold for an average of £7.9 million. After six, after after an average of six league appearances in six years, so essentially they don't—they're not really Chelsea players in any meaningful sense. I mean, the, the players that he's talking about, the likes of Nathan Ake, Mukhtar Ali, Christian Atsu, Patrick Bamford, Ryan Bertrand—you know, some of these more successful than Chalaba, who we mentioned earlier—he's on loan, um, or rather, Chalaba isn't on loan. Chalaba's a Chalaba's a. Uh, a proper, it's Loftus Cheek who's on loan, I think. Uh, Chalaba has joined Watford. Um, but you know, so they've made over five years 107 million pounds in profit just by trading young players who are realistically never going to play for Chelsea. I mean, they could do theoretically, they could play for Chelsea if they turned out to be really good. And there was a Chelsea manager, there happened to be a Chelsea manager who had an injury crisis and whose senior internationals were unavailable and was forced to play a youth player who ended up you know, Rashford style, banging in a few or, or playing really well. And maybe then, miraculously, he would end up being a Chelsea, an actual first-team player. But really, this is just about making money. And it is an interesting application of the idea, uh, the Matthew principle. The Matthew principle being, oh, and if I can quote the King James Bible. You may. For, un- for unto everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken even that which he hath. <laughs> which is to say, if you've, if you've got a bunch of money, like Roman Abramovich, it's very easy for you to make even more money. Uh, however, if you don't, then prepare to lose what little you have, because that is simply the way it works these days. <laughs> um, Great outlook. Yeah. I mean, it's, from, it's taken from the uh, Parable of the Talents, which is one of the weirdest, one of the weirdest um, stories in the Bible. Do you know the one? It's, quite, it's famous. I mean, you probably would remember it. Uh, from all the times you were forced to go to uh, mass back in the day. Gone. It's the one where the you've got some rich guy. Let's call him Roman Abramovich, mm-hmm. and he goes away, leaving his three servants, uh, entrusting them with talents, which is like a a bunch of money. And to the unto the first servant he gives he giveth five talents. Unto the second he giveth two, and verily unto the third he giveth the one remaining one. Mm-hmm. Like a talent is a fair chunk of chunk of cash like you know and then he goes away he goes to his yacht um sponsors some art show in you know new york or whatever and after a while he returns and he says so how are my talents doing 
and the first servant saith, uh, uh, Master, I have, I, I now have ten talents. I took the five talents you gave me, invested it wisely. Here are my returns. And he said, Oh, good and faithful servant, you know, you've done well. Your reward will be great. And then to the second servant, Well, so how did you do? And he said, Well, I took my two talents and I invested it in the market. I bought, you know, Nathan Ake, <laughs> Josh McEachern, and Marco Marine, sold them for a combined two talents profit. So I've also doubled my money. And he said, Oh, very well done, and uh, pats him in the head as well. Then he turns to the third servant, and he says, so how did you get on with that one talent? Well, we already know this, you see, because we, we already heard from the narrator. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Right? So we know, we know, we know what he did with the money. So then the, the Lord's, Roman Rambert says, um, you know, what did you do with the, how did you get on? And he says, uh, he said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, here thou hast, that is thine. In other words, uh, I, I know what kind you are, I know how mean you are. And I didn't want to run the risk of losing it, so I, I buried it and here it is. How do you think he reacts to this? Well, not well. But like, I mean, how, how badly should you react? How badly is it legitimate to react to that? Like, I mean, you've, you've, you gave him it, he's given it back to you. Yeah, but you're Roman Marmovich. You want to you see some profit. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, uh, thou knewest I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. I don't think he liked that, that suggestion that he's just, you know, taking other people's money just because he's already rich. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he punishes brutally the, the guy who, who just was risk averse and just put saved the money and gave his money to the, to the servant who was the richest. So who's getting banished back in 2017? Well, the, thir the third one, the, but the, the point of it is that this is a, this is a phenomenon which is seen in a lot. It was first described talking about scientific citations so that say if you're uh, an academic who's published some scientific paper and it happens to have been you know, quite famous, you then get loads and loads of citations from other people. Whereas, say, I've published a paper just as good as your one own, if I do say so myself, but just not as many people seem to mention it. I get mentioned very rarely. You get all the mentions and I get none, even though there's not actually that much difference between them. Wow. <laughs> in, this, in the case of, of this, it's like if you've got more money, you actually get more. And if you don't have any, you're going to lose it. And you can see this also in, in markets as the rich get richer, so they say. Chelsea are applying this principle um, to trading in football players because they start as a rich club because they're able to sign up all these people um, which a lot of clubs aren't really in the position to do they then get to effectively play the market and uh, generate this constant stream of profit from these players so i think to be honest that might not be a, s a sign of a club which is being run according to the best interests of the football playing community but it is a well-run club from the point of view of chelsea you know they're making money i will say one other thing about that bizarre story uh it seems as though it could all have been based on a, on a mis, like, misunderstanding 
or a miss a, a kind of a Chinese whispers type thing where they got it all uh, lost along the way. Because there's another version of it which turned up in some scroll in which, again, it's the same setup. He gives the three different, you know, five, two, and one. But the, the one he gives five goes away and, like, spends it on strippers. And the one who he's got two invest wisely in the stock market. And then the one who's got one buries it. And the punish, or, or the, his reaction then is to, obviously, he's pleased with the one who has two, who's gone and made his money. Not not so happy with the one who just buried it. He's like, well, that was stupid. You know, you're obviously not up to much. But obviously then he, he hammers the uh, the first guy for, for squandering the money on stupid stuff. And to be honest, that seems to make a bit more sense morally <laughs> compared to just beating this guy because he didn't really understand what to do. And there's a bit more variety to the story also. There is. There is. But um, anyway, that's what Chelsea have been up to. That's it for Monday's Report on Sport. He agrees with plenty, just it's always who's saying it, it's never what's actually said. 90% of anything is who's saying this, and 10% is what are they actually saying. So, the 90% in Giles' case is, oh, it's that twat. John is the best football brain in the world. He just thinks I'm an annoying twat. I'd never let you do. But if you're talking about the, the, the press, which you're talking about, have this you know, opinion of Guardiola, it doesn't necessarily mean that football people have. Yeah, I, I think I do like Ken Early's work. He writes fluently and thinks uh, cogently, but uh, I think he's wrong. The press come and go, as we know. You mentioned Ken Early. Well, yeah. you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily agree with anything Ken Early says about football. He just thinks I'm an annoying twat. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You know, what can you, what can you do? You can't please everyone. It was a pretty blunt performance in an attacking sense, I think, by Spurs yesterday, uh, even though they, well, certainly Pochettino claimed afterwards that they should have gotten something out of the game. A lot of people might agree, but they really didn't have any cutting edge at all. Jonathan Wilson, do you put it all down to their apparent ambivalence towards playing at Wembley Stadium? Um, no, I, I, I'm probably very little of it. Uh, I thought the game was, in, you know, in, in a sense, it was similar to the FA Cup semi-final that Tottenham probably felt they had the better of the game and, and Chelsea were just more ruthless. But actually, I think Tottenham were significantly poorer than they had been in that semi-final. Uh, that semi-final, they were, you know, they were pouring forward, they had chance after chance. Uh, this time, they, they seemed a little hesitant. That I don't know if that's an issue of the full-backs, but um, I mean, obviously Danny Rose was, was injured in, in the semi-final as well. But, but Walker was, was getting forward then. And they um, they played Son at, at uh, wing back in the semi final, and although he was responsible for for the penalty in that game, maybe he gave them a bit more thrust than, than than they had yesterday. That they they seemed pretty blunt. They they kept on they kept on getting into the positions where you thought, okay, play the pass now or make the run or take on the fullback, and yeah, they never quite did. Now maybe maybe that's to do with Chelsea. Maybe that's to do with them playing the three holding midfielders, but that space just wasn't there. Um, so it's probably a combination of the two, but I, I thought there was a, a needless caution about about Tottenham. Well, well, do you then blame Mauricio Pochettino to some extent for for picking the wrong team? I mean, the, when when they played Chelsea the previous time, the sorry, the cup semi final you talked about, uh, Walker only came on as a as a 
substitute that day. It was sort of three at the back uh, system and it seemed to work. Well, okay, the result was the same, but the performance was much better. Well, I wonder if that coloured his thinking, though, whether he thought, OK, we've got to be a bit more um, bit more conservative here, that we can't um, we can't be quite as gung-ho as we were then, we can't leave ourselves open. And so maybe he, 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 he told his team to be a bit more cautious. Uh, and, and I guess having seen how Chelsea had started the season, um, I suppose there's two ways of looking at that. Either you go for the kill or you think, actually, if we, you know, if we just do play this sensibly, we will get the chance eventually. Um, which I mean, you know, when they when they got the goal, it was um, yeah, from a set play and, and and ended up being an own goal. Uh, and there's still that very strange thing of Harry Kane not being able to score in August. But I mean, I don't think there's any sort of rational explanation for that. But you, no, you sense he from his comments after yeah, the game he, he that he's starting to play on his right? mind. Do you think so? Yeah, because he he looked he hit one shot off the post yesterday that was a bit unlucky. He actually it's one of those ones that he finishes quite well usually. I wouldn't even call it a curling. It was more powerful maybe than a curling shot. But he was, it looked like by his body shape, he was wheeling away in celebration or certainly ready to. And he couldn't believe it. It just bounces back off the post. Yeah, I mean, that was yeah, half an inch from being a brilliant finish. You know, you know the the way he sort of cut inside and created the angle for that shot. You know, I don't think he's playing badly at the minute. I don't think he's played badly in previous Augusts. I think it's just a statistical freak. Um, but you know, what he was saying after the game, that I mean, I suppose the question was put to him. So he has to respond to it somehow. But you know, he said he wasn't counting down the days till the end of the month, which suggests to me a man very much counting down yeah. the days till the end of the month. Yeah, um, I guess that the um, the bigger story maybe to emerge from the game is is evidence that Chelsea are probably not going to have what Antonio Conte referred to as a Mourinho season. This was. Uh, you know, they looked as though, despite missing important players all over the field and having to uh, rejig um, their formation and and play players in different positions and so on, um, they really went about the task with the with the right sort of attitude. I mean, Conte was talking about the uh, the attitude as, as the thing that pleased him most, but it looked as though you know this isn't a team that's kind of. Um, that that's kind of uh, lost its cohesion. Everyone's looking around, looking for someone to blame. Uh, Chelsea were really on it. Yeah, and I think there's a sense of that towards the end of last week. I thought his press conference on Friday, he he, he seemed much more upbeat. He seemed much happier. So I, I suspect he'd seen something during the week that sort of persuaded him that um, some of the problems had gone. I think the fact he's back in a suit was significant. I mean, <laughs> well, you were saying you were saying this before. Well, why? I mean, I don't see why. Well, okay, okay. I asked the question the other way around. Why would a man who habitually wears a suit turn up to two games wearing a tracksuit? He's making some kind of point. It's a new tracksuit. He liked the new tracksuit. The weather was hot. The suit is itchy. I mean, he's an Italian man with fine tailoring. I don't think he has itchy suits. There's loads of Italians love tracksuits, Jonathan. Giovanni Trapattoni Trapp- was now. what used to wear a tracksuit all the time. Not at matches, admittedly, but... Uh, no sharp suit at lo- matches. Loved a tracksuit. No, I, I think... You know, what, you know, I mean, I, I suppose I should look at what, what he used to wear when he was Italy manager um, at previous clubs, but... So, you know, last season, he was always in that suit, and that was part of his image. He took it very, very... Yeah, he was something he took this very serious. He was very much in a, well, in a managerial to, you know, role. I don't, not, to, somebody... not, not that we want to be too pedantic about it, but I, I do remember him, certainly at Anfield, wearing a puffer jacket and baseball cap. 
uh, you know, he, he looked like the kind of guy, if he came out of Termini Station, he'd be sort of <laughs> crossing, <laughs> crossing the road to avoid. So it's not as though he's, all, he's always gone for this uh, sort of sharp-suited boardroom that, that, image. That puffer jacket, was, uh, he was wearing suit trousers and, uh, you know, that was because he was cold, right? I mean, I don't mind a man, you don't know if he has to be Lenin Slutsky sitting there freezing to wear a suit. Mm. Yeah, he, I, I don't mind you putting a coat over the top. Um, I, but I, 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 I don't mind people wearing a tracksuit. It doesn't bother me what what they wear, unless it's a significant change to what they'd previously worn. Mm. And you know, when, when he came out for Community Shield wearing the tracksuit, admittedly a smarter tracksuit than Mourinho had worn in the similar circumstances two years earlier. You know, that that to me was was an alarm bell. That kind of this is a man who's sort of saying, "Yeah, I'm not entirely taking this seriously. Look, look, I'm, I'm it, this is dressed down, Antonio." Uh, and then when he continues to do that on the first day of the season, you sort of think, well, what is going on here? So, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, was, maybe his suit was at the dry cleaners or something. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Yeah. But the fact he was back in the suit and the fact that that coincided with a much sharper, uh, more disciplined performance, I, I would suggest those two things are not entirely coincidental. I think he probably just thought that that tracksuit was unlucky now. I, can't, I mean, we've lost twice in a row. I can't, I can't, I can't, I've got to change something. Um, but you mentioned Jose Mourinho there. Uh, I'm glad for that, um, so that I didn't have to be the one to bring him up. But he, it's, a, it's a great pleasure. <laughs> he is kind of uh, he. He's had something to do with this. I mean, the, this, the tricky start that Chelsea have been having. I mean, he's done a couple of things. First of all, we know that Conte said that well, we don't have a Mourinho season. You can imagine how that will have gone down. Uh, then he's Diego Costa reveals that Mourinho's been on the phone to him, um, sort of giving him a shoulder to cry on. While he's been in Brazil with the, in this contract standoff with Chelsea, and maybe the major problem that uh, that Chelsea have had this season has been the fact that Nemanja Matic went to join Manchester United. Um, you know, people were unsure whether Conte was was altogether happy with this, and Matic has kind of slotted in very well uh, in the first couple of games, and, and United are playing really well. So this this obviously doesn't look so good for Chelsea. I mean, how how big a loss do you think he actually is? Because I was thinking about it and. And, you know, Conte had come out with some... Uh, Conte was saying, yes, of course, Emmanuel, very important player, top, top player, huge loss. And I thought, does he really think Emmanuel Matic is a top player? I mean, if you look back at the players that he's worked with, Emmanuel Matic isn't a top player when, when you compare him to... You know, Emmanuel Matic would not have got into the Juventus team that, that uh, Conte had ahead of Pirlo, Vidal, Marquisio, these types of players. You know, he, he couldn't really think he was that great. He, he, could, do, he could do a holding role in there. No, because the the player doing the holding role was was Pirlo. I mean, a guy who can set you know set players players free all over the park. I, I think Matic looked at or Conte looked at Matic and thought, yeah, this guy's all right, but you know we can do better. Yeah, but, I mean, I I, you know, I don't think the match would have been a first choice. You know, given the rest of the squad Chelsea have, I you know I think he would have been the, the backup for Kante um, or Bakayoko, and Bakayoko I think is probably an upgrade. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the issue with Chelsea, it's, it's not just the, the quality of play. Or if it's not not really the quality of play. It's, it's the quantity. And they're going to really struggle, I think. With I mean, I, I think they were lucky last season. That squad, um, there were a huge... I mean, I, I think 11 players played 29 or more games last season. I, I think that's, that's right. It might be 28 or more. Um, yeah, they, they had incredible consistency in, in selection. Uh, and you, you can't expect that to happen every season, and that's without the Champions League. So I think they needed to three or four players to just to make the squad big enough to cope with the two competitions. Matic 
were seemingly happy there. They knew what, exactly what he could do. He, I think he's a better player than people give him credit for. He's not just a holder. He also had seven assists last season. Uh, and, you know, I think he's quite a good passer of the ball. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, maybe... What, what if Bakayoko doesn't settle? I mean, Bakayoko's still young. He you know, never played in the Premier League before. If there's a chance it takes him three or four months to settle, having Matic there as a backup, I can see why you would think, OK, maybe this guy's only a 7 out of 10 player and I want people who are 7.5 or 8 out of 10 players. But we know what he is and that's quite useful to have you know, just to, um, you know, just in case things go wrong. And then the point of giving him to United when United clearly needed that type of player uh, and so you've strengthened the rival. And then, then there's all this weird thing going on. I mean, did Conte... Uh, I mean, did Conte okay him leaving? I mean, all, all the briefing that people seem to be getting is that um, the Conte okayed that. I mean, certainly the Telegraph have been been pushing that quite hard, that this was Conte's decision, everything else is sort of smoke and mirrors. And it actually suits both Conte and Mourinho to say, you know, Chelsea's transfer committee, you have this three-director three, three director committee with Michael Emanalo, uh, with Marina Gronskaya and um, uh, Eugene Tenenbaum, that you know, how can a manager possibly work with them? You know, they're, they're a law unto themselves. They do their own thing and they don't consult the manager. That's sort of suited Conte and Mourinho to push that line, and it's Mourinho's way of explaining away his Mourinho season, and it sort of allowed Conte to deflect from two pretty poor performances in the Community Shield and against Burnley. It's a dangerous political game to play, though, isn't it, within the club? I think it's very dangerous. But then on the other hand, I'm not sure how much Conte cares. <laughs> you know, he didn't extend his contract. His contract expires in 2019. Well, you saw him at the end of the game yesterday. He went absolutely berserk. I'm sure he likes winning, but I don't think he'd be devastated if he lost the Chelsea job. You know, Nobody ever is. There. He's won the league outside of Italy. He's proved himself in that regard. And if it goes wrong, a lot of people have had careers that have gone wrong at Chelsea. So if he felt he was being undermined from within, if he, if he felt the, the job was being made, um, you know, that he was being hampered by by the decisions of that transfer committee. If he decided, you know what, if it goes wrong, I don't mind, I'll just go back to Italy, that wouldn't surprise me. And I, I can understand why he'd be preparing the ground and, and preparing his excuses for that. I just want to get your thoughts quickly on Manchester United, who've started this season in record-breaking form. Uh, this is the first time they've ever scored four goals, as many as four goals, I think, in their first two matches of a league season. Um, how much do you think does it have to do with Matic? Uh, I mean, Matic, the word, the verb that's always used in the same sentence as him now is liberated. Matic is like uh, Simon Bolivar for all of the other Manchester United midfielders. They all, <laughs> they're, they're, they've been unlocked. Pogba has hit a higher level. Uh, everybody's playing much better. Ander Herrera, delighted, of course, because he's a team man, even though he's on the bench. Um, but do you think that uh, Matic has had that much of an impact? I mean, we'll find out when they play a proper side rather than Swansea or West Ham. Um, yeah, I mean, Swansea are clearly, I mean, A, yes, struggled against relegation last season. B, they've lost their, their best player in Sigurdsson uh, and they're still readjusting to that. Um, yeah, David Moyes uh, won 4-0 or 4-1 away at Swansea um, in, in his first league game in charge. So, yeah, Yes, they've played well against West Ham and Swansea. I'm not sure that means a huge amount. Much you can read too much into it because he, you know, you, you would expect United with the players they've got, the players they had last season, to to win those games quite comfortably. Particularly with Bukaku, who you know is 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 good at punishing teams of that level. So yeah, they've played well, but I, I don't really think it tells us a huge amount about how much they've improved yet. Jonathan, last question as you speak to us: Are you wearing a 
crisply tailored suit or are you going tracksuit? Um, I'm wearing a pair of cargo shorts and an old hockey shirt. Okay, that's good enough. But I've like just got in from the gym, that's why. You know, I, <laughs> I don't want to sweat in nice clothing. Jonathan, lovely stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, thanks. He's just a crying big baby. But you cannot call it a player, a baby. Coach! And we never say they are baby. It's just a crying big baby. And you cannot call him a player a baby. Oof. A lot more tracksuit talk there than I had imagined there was going to be. You know, if it's a cold day, there are other options available to a person besides sticking a puffer jacket over your suit and putting a baseball cap over your head. Yeah. There are other types of jackets, types of coats, long flowing Capes. Well, this, well, this, the kind of you know, or, you know just overcoat that, that, that usually a kind of a banker would wear if it was December or whatever. And hmm. um, but Conte didn't go for that. Do you buy into Jonathan's theory? I'm not some sure. Sort of a, some sort of a protest. I'm not. I'm no, not. Not with the puffer jacket. I'm, I'm conflating different events now. The puffer jacket was last season when all was going well, so that's that's that. But the tracksuit phase. Yeah, started this season. I, I'm not sure. I honestly think he he may just have gone. Oh, this this is unlucky, you know. It, or I've got to change. Uh, I don't. I I don't know. I mean, I think it it has been true. I mean, we've spoken before about the 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 time it happened with Benitez. You know, I'm, I'm coaching, training the team, but he actually picked a tracksuit that was way too big for him on purpose. It was like he was wearing a a tracksuit top where the arms like extended way down past his hands and sort of drooped at the end, you know? So he looked like a child wearing like a, a parent's clothes. <laughs> and he was kind of, when he waved his arms on the sideline, he, he, met, he was this ridiculous clownish figure. So he was drawing, he was clearly drawing attention to it. Whereas, I mean, in the most, it's, it's the most sarcastic thing I've ever seen a manager do to his employer. Whereas in Conte's case, you know, it, the tracksuit was the right size. You know, he looked pretty good. It was some nice gear. Mm-hmm. You know, it was. I, I'm not. I'm not too keen on the Chelsea kit. It looks like a. Bl- it's a blue T-shirt. You know, it's they're just they're just wearing a blue T-shirt this year. They haven't really tried to put incorporate many, you know, striking design elements. But their uh, tracksuit stuff, I would have thought was uh, was pretty nice. It's been a shaky start to the season for Arsenal. They survived a seven-goal shootout against Leicester in the opening day, but they were nudged over by Stoke City on Saturday. Paul Doyle was there for the Guardian. Paul, it seems like fans. At home games for Arsenal are always ready to explode on the point of mutiny. What's the story with the away supporters? For example, at Stoke this weekend, you were there for what was it like there? Uh, I didn't not not this time. No, it has been in in the past. Uh, I remember, for example, West Brom last season was uh, absolutely poisonous from the away end. But um, no, because Arsenal were pushing for an equaliser until the very end, they, they were kind of willing their team on, and uh, I didn't notice. Uh, 
a massive outpouring of, of, of discontent, but um, maybe there wasn't. I didn't notice it, but it, it, no, it, it wasn't too, too over the top in any case. It was obviously a great result for Stoke. Um, and I wonder what you think of, of where they're at as a club, because they're maybe just stuck in a bit of an in-between phase at the moment. Uh, Mark Hughes had been hired to change their image after so many years of Tony Pulis, and everyone always knew what to expect from Stoke when Pulis was the manager. And now it seems nobody is quite mm-hmm. sure what Stoke are trying to do anymore. Is there, is there any evidence that uh, some kind of identity is beginning to emerge at this stage? Well, yeah, actually, um, I actually tipped them for relegation about about a month ago, um, because, and that was mainly on the evidence of last season when they were uh, uh, very much in regression, and that uh, new identity that Hughes had begun to to instill. Although he doesn't describe it as a new identity, he describes it as a return to Stoke's old identity, uh, Stoke being uh, the, the club of Stanley Matthews and. and uh, having a rich tradition of flair players. So he said, and I, I spoke to him about this on Friday before the game, he said that the ideal is to have that combination of traditional Stoke flair and the solidity that uh, that Tony Pulis introduced. So that's what he was um, aspiring towards. And you could argue that uh, in, in the first few years of his reign, where he, where he got them three uh, successive ninth-place finishes, he pretty much did that. And they... they um, they thrilled their fans by by regularly um, worrying, uh, you know, the aristocratic clubs, which is uh, always a, a pleasure for Stoke fans. But last season, they, they were just a club on the drift, and they'd lost that identity. And like you say, no one quite knew what to expect from them. And some of their old stagers, who who embodied the, those sort of warrior spirit, were, were on the, the decline. And, and and two of them, of course, were sold in the summer when Glenn Whelan and John Walters left. Uh, and so I thought that they would really struggle. But I made that prediction before they um, made some uh, key recruits. Uh, I didn't think that you know, Martin Zindi would stay with them, and he and, they, and he did in the end. Um, uh, and he's a he's a great centre back. They also got Kuzma from Chelsea, who who was brilliant against Arsenal, and uh, shows no ill effects from the injury that stalled his his Chelsea career. And um, and of course they got in Jesse Rodriguez this week, and um, and he he was you know very much a player player, and he was brilliant on Saturday. Use reckon use a strategy uh, if you like, uh, for the most part when it comes to transfers, is to try and attract players who are at top clubs but not playing regularly. So he said that he expects to get a few more in before the transfer window closes, as those big clubs make their transfers, and it becomes clear to certain players at those clubs. But they're not going to be playing regularly, uh, so they might fancy a season or two at Stoke. Yeah. So uh, uh, it looks like they could. Be I I mean the reactions to game uh, featured a couple of familiar teams. One of them was Mesut Ozil getting hammered by. Um, English pundits on TV for not doing enough off the ball. Stephen Jarrod and Martin Keown both absolutely mullered him, really. And and even the Stoke police joined in with like a bantering tweet about how Ozil was a missing person and so on and so forth. When you, uh, I mean, what <laughs> did you think this was particularly bad uh, from Ozil? Was is, is this just people latching onto a convenient scapegoat or? Um, is is this uh, is this a problem? I mean, look, you know, when when Ozil does this in in like February, people are like, oh my god, you know, he's knackered. He 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 needs the winter break. There's so many games in his legs, but this is yeah. like the second game of the season. This isn't good. <laughs> no, well, this is how he plays. I mean, for, the first thing to say is he was excellent on the ball. He created a lot of chances, and his passing was was very good. And uh, and at times he was 
really brilliant. So he was a real asset to the team in that respect. Uh, but no, he doesn't uh, kill himself trying to win the ball back. Um, and he's kind of appointed himself as a luxury player. And nothing Wenger has done suggests that, that he's, he's going to be disabused of that notion. Wenger seems happy enough to, to have him um, play that role. But the, the main problem is that um, nobody, he doesn't compensate uh, for that by having uh, players who are more dynamic than him well, they are slightly more dynamic than him, but not not enough to offset the fact that he that Ozil doesn't do a lot of chasing back or trying to win the ball back. You know, Xhaka isn't. He's no, you know, N'Golo Kante. Uh, he 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 can't do it all by himself. And uh, Ram, Ramsey is actually quite dynamic and um, uh, and and does put his foot in. And he, uh, in fact, he I think he made more tackles than any other Arsenal player on Saturday. The stats show. Um, but again, it's it's not a regular team, and and so that is one of the many weaknesses. But there, there were other, there were lots of other problems. But basically, Arsenal have a lot of unreliable players, players who who won't consistently hit the highest standard. You know, whether that be in terms of their finishing, uh, their defending, uh, or their you know trying to win win the ball back off the ball. Well, and, well, and that has to be down to Wenger. You know, he he has tolerated and indulged. A lot of players. He just hasn't set the standards high enough. Yeah, well, it's it's down to Wenger. In, in I mean, he's he's I suppose the guy who's put this team together, and he's the guy who who picks them like Mesut Ozil, knowing knowing what kind of player Ozil is. I mean, it's not as though Ozil only plays like this for Arsenal. He's also useless off the ball for every team yeah. that he that he's played for. But uh, but what category what category would you put um, what category would you put Lacazette into? Because I know that you watch a good bit of French football. Um, he did come to the Premier League with some uh, off the back of a you know twenty eight goal season. Okay, a, a few of them were penalties, but um, you know it's not it's not to be laughed at this uh, this goal total uh, that he that he got last season. And on the evidence of his first couple of games for Arsenal, although they've you know they haven't won uh, both of the games, he looks as though he could actually be pretty good for them. I think he will be, and I I was surprised that. Um that Wenger took him off. I actually, I actually asked him about it afterwards. I asked him why did he take him off because it was uh, it was only a few minutes after uh, Lacazette scored what Wenger believed was a perfectly good goal. And although it, it, the replay suggests he was a couple of millimeters offside, it was a, he didn't know that, and it was a brilliant finish. And Wenger, let's not forget, is the guy who introduced the term "fox in a box" to English football. I thought it was Thierry. It was Thierry. It was Thierry Henry. I thought it was Thierry Henry who, who was saying we need a. Uh, we need one of those. We need a fox in the box after the FA Cup final. Hey, well, I remember Wenger saying it. Uh, I thought I remember him saying it before uh, uh, Henri was, uh, arrived. I certainly remember him saying it actually around the time of uh, when he signed Franny Jeffers, wasn't he? Yeah, he um, was. He was. He was the, the, the fox. The box. He was the fox well, the that Henri's goal for. The, yeah. the point is, he's been saying it for a very long time. You know, <laughs> so he recognises the value of a fox in the box. And Lacazette is very much that. I think even in the two games that you've seen him here, he is really sharp in the box and he, he can create space for himself very quickly and get a shot off very quickly. So I thought, I thought he'd be very much the sort of guy, your £52 million fox in the box is very much the sort of guy you need on the pitch when you're chasing an equaliser and hopefully even a winner after that. But he took him off um, and I asked him why. Uh, and he said because he the reason was that because he had already put on uh, Giroud, who went centrally, and he put Lacazette, and he sh- he shifted Lacazette to the right, and he just kept on drifting in, uh, and that, that's how he actually scored that offside goal was from drifting in off the right. So he was still effective from there, but he said uh, since Giroud was on, I thought I better put on um, Theo Walcott uh, to, to get in the crosses. Um, now 
uh, I, I didn't recall Theo Walcott putting in any crosses after that, so I checked the stats, and sure enough, he didn't uh, put in any crosses to anybody, let alone to Giroud. Um, so so a lot, none, of, none of his key decisions worked, whereas, for example, Mark Hughes, uh, all, all his gambles uh, um, uh, paid off. Now, you could say, well, it's just one of those games, you know, on, an, on another day, they, they would have finished their chances or they would have got a couple of decisions and the goalkeeper, the opposing goalkeeper wouldn't have played so well. It could give them the benefit of the doubt. But it's Arsenal and we've seen it so many times before so it becomes increasingly difficult to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, Paul Doyle, brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. Thank you. Bye. You, what are you saying? You're just a phony, man. This is just what I I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day supposed to look. This ain't wrestling. This ain't the WWE, baby. My belly's just a little big. Just a little big. This is just an act that you're doing. You should be an actor. But brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad. I'll never do that. There were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, brother. And the other one's right here. You can run around like you're a preacher out of fashion now, no? I mean, everybody does like a fox in the box in 2017, but they also want that fox to morph into a cart horse outside the box and down the channels and so on. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, it's, 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 it's like Jonathan Wilson says, you know, goals are overrated. Uh, you don't want just some guy who, who scores goals and doesn't do much else. Although, you know, failing that other player, to have a guy who scores a lot of goals is always... You know, you can work with that. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not really sure. I was a bit I was a bit dubious about whether Lacazette has the ability to transform Arsenal, but he has been good. You know, what I've seen of him in the first two games, he's been he's looking pretty sharp. Do you want players who are born offside, Ken, like Pippo and Zaggy? Uh, He'd be a fox in the box now. You can't. You see, everybody has to move so much more now. You know, it's the the problem is it's the it's like what we were talking about with Ozil. You know. Um, the problem is that you need players who are prepared to contribute off the ball. I mean, it's not not everybody has to be, you know, Firmino. Like, so Firmino is probably the best in the in the league at the moment of doing this uh, in terms of the the amount of running and defensive work that he does from a withdrawn centre forward position is is insane uh, because he's incredibly strong and has the stamina to do this. You'll notice he's not exactly the sharpest in the box, though. He's not like. Uh, it's it's rare that you will find a player who is able to combine this frenetic work rate with surgical finishing. You know, the players like that are really rare. I mean, Lewandowski you're talking about is, is, but you know, Lewandowski is just physically an absolute freak. You know what I mean? <laughs> Most players are not that gifted. But the problem, the, there is, everybody, every player can do a little bit more than Mesut Ozil is doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's the problem. If you've got a player who is not going to contribute that because he's saying, Consciously, look, I'm going to save my energy for wh- for where I'm needed. Unless that player is Lionel Messi, it's it's going to cost you a self-appointed luxury player, as Paul described him there. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he is. And okay, fine. You know, Ozil. Maybe he needs to go and play for Paris Saint Germain. You know, maybe that's where he. Maybe that's where he ought to be. But as long as he's doing this, people are going to be saying, "Look at this guy. He's not trying." And I know, and, and it's something that really annoys Arsenal fans. Oh, why are you? You know, it's such a typical stupid English football comment from English footballers. Steven Gerrard and Martin Keown, oh, they always turn on the foreigner at the first sign of things going wrong. And it's always the same stupid basic criticism. Oh, he's not, he's not trying hard enough. You know, he doesn't have any passion. And it's really annoying. 
they got a point. They really do. It's not just it's not just about oh I'm not showing enough passion. I'm not like showing the fans that I really care. It's it's the teammates. It's what's happening it's what's happening on the field. You have to be able to help your teammates to stop the other team doing what they're trying to do and to try to get the ball back off them. Because if you're not, it's that much easier for them. It's going to cost your team. You're going to have to make up for that with serious production of goals and assists, you know, messy levels. Everyone forgives Messi because he's clearly the best. You know, he's scoring and assisting in every game. So he gets he gets to not really chase. But, you know, Ozil is nowhere near that level. So he, he probably needs to show a bit more. If you want to be part of a brand new independent member-led way of broadcasting, then we'd love to see you during the week, all week on the World Service. If not, I guess we'll catch up next Monday. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you too. Huh? Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon. What's going on? Is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home.